Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at Symposium 2, a conference held in Los Angeles at Stephen Wise Temple in November of 2018. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons podcast, and it is my great pleasure to welcome back for our first follow-up interview, Rabbi Jeffrey Middleman. Rabbi Jeffrey Middleman is the founding director of Sinai and Synapses, an organization that bridges the scientific and religious worlds. You can find our previous conversation on the College Commons website. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to see you again. Uh, We're here at Symposium 2, and uh, we're talking about truth, understanding that truth sometimes feels like it's under assault. Mm -hmm. This is the theme of our conference. What's on your mind with respect to truth and our conference? So one thing that I'm going to be talking about a little bit is that our brains are not scientists, they're lawyers. Um, When we think about evidence, we tend not to be able to look at evidence in a dispassionate way to be able to say, okay, is this my, is my hypothesis true or not? Um, I was on, on a jury a few months ago, and the conversation about evidence was very different in the legal perspective than from the scientific perspective, because the lawyers in this, in this uh, jury trial, they were presenting evidence to convince us of a particular perspective there. So the word evidence can mean a couple of different things. And the world that we're living in now, it's becoming more and more that evidence is used in in a sense of making arguments and convincing people rather than trying to find a a larger sense of truth. You can find evidence to find a a variety of different pieces, and and they're they're not necessarily incorrect, but they may be incomplete, and they may be Um, partial, and they also are uh, designed to be able to convince particular people. And, you know, in in this ultra-polarized world that we're living in, the people that we're talking to, the evidence convinces the people who it already convinces. Evidence, actually, there's a lot of research that says that if you already believe something, a, a contradictory piece of evidence will actually strengthen what somebody's pre-existing perspective is rather than trying to to rethink where they are. Thanks to the net, we have at our fingertips more or less an infinite range of evidence which could be divided roughly 50-50 on any question to be, you know, the devil can quote scripture type thing. Mm -hmm. So you can see why um, someone won't be moved at all by an article of evidence when they have six other things in their pocket. Right. There are a lot of factors on that. That's that's, That's a big part of it. One is that there is more and more information out there in the world, but a lot less wisdom. Um, and so being able to find information, people can actually cherry pick the information that they want or they'll see something shared. I mean, I see this all the time on Facebook of people sharing an article, but not necessarily finding what the sources are. And one thing that often happens, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, where I'll see something that one of my friends shared on Facebook and, I, and I'll read sort of the headline and then I'll talk to a friend and say, you know, I saw something on Facebook that was an interesting piece, but I can't remember who said it. I don't know what the source is. And and then it becomes my truth. Um, And and so being able to untangle all of this, um, of the speed that the information spreads out into this world, and the time that it takes to be able to parse it and figure out what's accurate, what's not accurate, what's my source, who's saying it, why, that becomes much harder right now. 
And thus far, you've been talking about the nature of evidence, but since you established a comparison with science, mm-hmm. let's go back a step prior to the evidence and ask a question about the question. Because it seems to me that science prides itself on asking very, very narrow questions mm-hmm. and giving a specific hypothesis to test. Right. Whereas these social questions um, often get very broad, mm-hmm. very fast, which promotes the um, kind of uh, Wild West quality of evidence because the question itself can really be tackled from so many different angles mm-hmm. that it's hard to even agree on what's uh, what we would call an evidentiary standard. And, and what's also complicated is communicating science from that very narrow specific element to the way it's communicated to the public. So in a scientific journal, they will say, here's what our methodology is, here's what our hypothesis is, here's the audience, here's, here's, what, here's what we did so that people could then later say, oh, I see mistakes in your, in your research. Now, that doesn't mean that it always happens. There's what's called the replication crisis that's happened a little bit, but in many ways that's actually science's strength to be able to say, okay, we know actually how we can retract this. So they may ask a very specific, narrow question with all the details and what's the, the they call it p-hacking over, you know, what's the narrow, the, the, the range of error and how many people and all these different theses. Then it gets communicated to, uh, to the media of chocolate says it helps your health. And, that's, and that becomes the truth when in fact it's so much more complicated than that. I will say this as a non-scientist. Yeah. It appears to me that the culture of science is suffering a crisis whereby it feels obligated to justify its relevance. Mm -hmm. And so it promotes itself in popular uh, outlets that absolutely expand the implications or claim to Mm -hmm. expand the implications. That that does seem to me to be a scientific crisis. And so it... I think the the problem, I think, is not as much the science, but the way it's communicated. Because one thing that we now sometimes say with Sinai and synapses is that in the world that we're living in, there's this perception that on one side is scientific, educated, liberal, and the other side is is uh, religious, uneducated, conservative. Yeah. And if you pick anything from either column, you got to pick everything, <laughs> and you've got to demonize the other side. So that means that science is perceived as those elites that you know, the 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 liberals they have right. an agenda now that may or may not be accurate that's a whole other conversation but it can come off very condescending in a lot of ways right. and so it's not just what's the information well it's the facts it's the truth well yes but if it's going to impact real people's lives you've got to be able to know how to communicate that so that it can be internalized i i agree that there has to be artful skillful expert and faithful communication I'm actually challenging the scientific establishment. If it were true to itself, it would communicate the full narrowness of its conclusions at every mm-hmm. opportunity. But in fact, let's even before we get to the media, let's just talk about grant making. Mm-hmm. Scientists have a, a powerful incentive to be able to articulate broad impact for very, very sure. narrow questions. That promotes distorted communication, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. There's, there's actually there's a wonderful TV show uh, called Adam Ruins Everything, where a comedian named Adam Conover talks about all the problems in all sorts of different pieces, and what he does is Adam ruins science. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he talks about this, that there is, um, there, there, it, it's misaligned incentives. Most scientists are not, you know, buying multi-million dollar mansions, right. but they do need to be able to support their family in right. some way. 
I want to ask you to cite perhaps the example that's most that's foremost in your mind about a broken step of scientific analysis and communication mm. um, for the you know an attempted benefit for society, but that's going awry or has recently gone awry. So, so I think a lot of, of a big, big challenge, and it's not just in the scientific world, I think it's the, in the wider academic world, is a level of siloing and, and between um, the scientific communities and the humanities also. And so you brought up a really important point, which is there's often a very um, narrow perspective. And not only, not, you know, for, forget about scientists talking with religious people. It's very rare for, you know, a scientist to be able to talk with a literature professor, mm-hmm. let alone for a scientist, for a biologist to be able to talk with a chemist. Right. And, like, and, right. and, and there's not a good, there are not strong incentives to be able to do cross-pollination and conversations here. Of um, If you're in the scientific community, very generally, you're focused on your experiment because that's what your job is. And that, you know, you, you got to teach and you got to do, you know, this particular piece. But being able to um, connect it to other elements is, is really challenging and really problematic because we're seeing so much fragmentation of what, what does truth look like? Who am I talking to? Mm-hmm. What are, right. What's my sources of, of, of inspiration? And, 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 and not just sources of inspiration, but sources of knowledge that... There's we, we see this because we do a lot of, of interfaith work. We have an interfaith fellowship. We have these doctoral students who come, and they're doctoral students in astronomy and psychology, and they're in conversation with, with pastors. And the doctoral students, we've had a couple who've actually sort of changed their doctoral work out of the fellowship work that we're doing because it's broadened what their perspective is. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click Sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. Moving to the political sphere yeah. as a reflection of science with respect to global climate change, mm-hmm. which is one of the it's a, it's a broad posture mm-hmm. uh, global climate change, and it, it it's suffering all kinds of as, as we all know um, attacks and challenges. Let's just for the moment accept the somewhat stereotyped um, uneducated conservative and religious versus mm-hmm. educated um, what was it secular liberal and science. Yeah, let's for the moment accept that um, even if it's oversimplified. I have heard the rhetoric of the conservative religious stipulate that global climate change is happening, Mm -hmm. but then to question its source. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is movement, because not so long ago they were questioning the fact of the phenomenon Mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. Is that movement, or is that just political jockeying? That's a good question. My hope is that there's movement. and I think that, again, it's, it's who do you communicate with. So there's, there's one person who um, I tremendously respect. Her, her name is Catherine, K- Catherine Hayhoe, who is an evangelical Christian. 
and she talks to predominantly um, right-wing and evangelical Christian communities in the language of religious perspective to be able to talk about climate change. And that's something that's an incredibly powerful piece because um, if you notice that you know, from a scientific perspective, there's nobody who's fighting against Newton's laws of motion. Right. Right? Nobody's saying that's not real. There's an, there's an economic, political element yeah. of climate change. And so being able to, um, to talk about it in a religious perspective, in a, um, in a moral perspective, that, I think, is a, is a tremendous step forward. But I'm also seeing that from a larger political perspective and, and seeing you know, President Trump withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord, that there's a, there's a strong chance of, of Republicans and conservatives pulling away from, um, from, that, from that need. So, so there may be a little bit of a decoupling uh, of right, happening. Right, right. And we might lose some ground because of yeah. that. When you talk to a person on the right side of our stereotyped categories— mm-hmm. Um, they will, and you say, but you're being ideological. They mm-hmm. will look you in the eye and they will say, yes, of right. course I'm being ideological. That's what I am and that's what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. that's, I'm happy about that. I'm not hiding that. However, if you speak to a, a committed, enlightenment-styled uh, science person mm-hmm. or scientist, they're more prone to saying, I'm not being ideological. I'm being factual. Right. And it seems to me that there is a serious, serious blind spot about mm-hmm. the ideology mm-hmm. of science, the ideology of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. and that we need to come to terms with that, if nothing else, to be interlocutors of good faith. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with me? Yeah, I think, I think that's accurate. And I think, that, I, I, think, I think one difference is that, is that science at its best in a platonic ideal is designed to not be ideological, but it is an article of faith that you know that, that we can understand the universe. You know that right, that's right. you know that's. Um, but one thing that 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 people are starting to talk about now is the difference between science and scientism. Yeah, um, interesting, right? Because, because I'm a scientist. Yeah. I'm a scientismist. Right. Because I'm not a scientist, but I'm, I'm I'm into scientism. I buy it. Yeah. I buy its 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 ideology. Well, scientism is actually the idea that science can and should explain absolutely everything, including religion, oh. God, and that. Oh. But many religious people can hold that and still be religious. Yeah. Well, I think I think religious people can hold science. I think a, a level of scientism is science has its own rules that it abides by. Mm-hmm. This is, and, and, and that's an article of faith in a lot of ways. If that's, you right. know, I, Governing principle. Right. This is, here's what we're going to do, and, and, and this is, these are the rules. And by the way, if it's outside of these rules, we're not going to talk about it, right. which is why, in many ways, I don't really care what Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking have to say about God, because they're not theologians. Right. In right. the same way that I'm not going to look towards a religious person to explain the origins right. of the universe. Right. So scientism owns up a bit to its ideological mm-hmm. commitments, which, which I see. But even science, I want to push back in the platonic sense, mm-hmm. because even radical, pure platonic science still evinces ideology in the questions it chooses to ask. Sure. And so maybe it asks them and then proceeds reasonably fairly within the rules mm-hmm. to answer them. Mm-hmm. But the scope of the questions, the questions themselves, the components of the universe that it chooses to investigate surely are loaded. They, they are, I think. But again, in an ideal sense, any question should be up for debate scientifically. Yes. I think that's... Now, there, now there are there constraints 
of course, you know, that's, and, and, um, and scientists are humans. And so, you know, there, there are going to be some, there are, and there are religious scientists who are investigating something that's inspired by their faith, inspired by their right, right. tradition. And, and the, the idea that there are some things that should not be studied, now that could become politically loaded. You're, do we need to look at questions of gender from a scientific perspective? Do we look at questions of race? Right. Do we look at questions of gun control? Gay, gay rights was completely subject to the... And abortion, of right. course. They, they're, they, they're explicitly right. invoked. Right. And there's and, and one thing that's, that, that can be challenging is what happens if there's research that doesn't necessarily confirm what our ideology right. would say. Right. Um, right. And, that, and that can be very uncomfortable. Right. But, but again, the, ideolo- the ideology comes into play because... Why would a scientist bother to ask the question about when life begins in the first place? I mean, right. They have protozoa to work with. They don't necessarily have to work with, uh, you know, fetuses. Mm-hmm. Or so it's, it strikes me as, as loaded, and sure. I think that the left needs to own how loaded it is, and maybe that can bridge a little bit. Right, and I think right because because there's on on both sides. For example, if you talk about abortion, that that you know, both sides will 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 bring forth scientific arguments, but not necessarily. In the in the scientific perspective, but in the lawyer perspective, right? right, right. right. I'm going to use this to convince you as to why my perspective is accurate. But it's not just Democrats, Republicans, but it's also Israeli Palestinian. Mm -hmm. It's you know there's there's a a same kind of question of epistemology and humility and relationship building, and that needs to happen across any kind of divide where it's where it's polarized. And, and maybe Judaism, by virtue of having developed as a minority culture and diaspora, can bring some of that humility mm-hmm. um, because we have traditionally entered interreligious conversations with the understanding that we are we're the dissenters, mm-hmm. and that's a it's a powerful place mm-hmm. to come from. Well, Rabbi Jeffrey Middleman, now I can call you my friend. We've yes. met a number of times. It's such a pleasure to spend time with you. I want to thank you uh, for your insights and the pleasure of your company and a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Josh. Wonderful to be with you again. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the College Commons Podcast, available wherever you listen to your podcasts or at the College Commons website, collegecommons.huc.edu, where you can also stay tuned for future episodes.